everybody? Amen. Evening. If you have a Bible, switch it on, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you're finding that, I'll introduce us for this evening what we're going to be thinking about. So the title of this talk tonight is Jesus Christ, Our Living Hope. So we'll pick that up in Scripture as we're reading this. And these verses will be familiar to, to many of you. But I want to start off by asking you this question. What do you hope for? Because we all live in hope of something. And without hope, life is not life. I mean, what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning if you don't have anything to actually hope for? I want you to take a minute at the very start now, as you're finding that passage, you're thinking in your mind, what, what do you actually hope for? Because I'm not talking about the hope of, I hope that the weather's going to be great this week, or a hope that I will finally get that holiday after COVID's all settled and don't have to worry about green amber or red or vaccines or anything else. But what do you really hope for? The hope you have for your life, because it's hugely significant, it's so, so important. And whatever you hope for will shape, uh, well, how, will shape how you live your life because that's why you live your life. And the hope that you will obtain or see or become whatever you hope for. And that will take up your time, your thoughts, your money, your motives, your energy, everything. And as Jesus put so adequately himself, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever we hope for is what we treasure most. And you can be sure that's where our hearts will really be. Before I became a Christian, I had hopes that everybody in this room will understand. They go sort of in this order, not roughly, but girl, house, car, money, relationship, stuff like something like that, in that order. Everybody can understand something of those. And they're not inherently bad. It's not one of those sermons where it's like, oh, they're all terrible, scrap all those. No, they're not inherently bad at face value. But it's when we make those things our ultimate hopes, that's when we get into trouble. And when I had just become a Christian, at 22, I remember sitting in Scrabble Hall, first evening meeting, and I had absolutely no idea what was going on. I had no idea what the preacher said. I knew nobody around me at all. And I sat by myself and I kind of thought, well, I don't know what's going on here. I'm not sure why everyone comes here week in, week out, but if I just sit here and try and be a good boy, at least I'll not be doing all the things and not chasing all, all the stuff I was doing. And the Lord was like, that's not how this works. <laughs> Thank goodness he said, that's not how this works. But the direction of my life it had gone from burning out on those sky high hopes, chasing after some of those things, to something that was so negative, just not wanting to mess up, just wanting to be still, like not wanting to make a mistake or put a foot the wrong way. And I had no idea how Jesus was going to completely change my life and what I hoped and what I lived for. Because the hope that he offers me and that he, hope, that he offers every one of us is so much more than anything this world can give in exchange. That's why I love him, and that's why I follow him. And I know it's the same for many of you in this room. And in a world that tells us to find meaning and significance and hope in ourselves and what we have or what we do, Jesus invites us to find meaning and hope and significance in him. It's so much greater than ourselves, and we find that in a personal relationship with him and by him bringing us into his church family worldwide. So what I want to try and show you from this scripture reading tonight, as we look at it, is in Jesus, we have a hope that is secure, is superior, it's more sustainable than any other hope that this world can offer us. And what I want to suggest to you is that this hope is better because it's everlasting. The realized, realization of this hope is greater than anything we could ever have or become our own. And this hope, it can't be broken in the way that other hopes are by the struggles and the suffering and the disappointment of our lives but it's actually through those that this hope becomes more focused and it becomes ingrained in us as we follow 
Jesus. So that introduction in mind, let's read this scripture. I'm going to start 1 Peter uh, 1, starting in verse 3. And this is what it says. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Martin Luther King once said, we're not makers of history, we are made by history. And that can be said right here in the life of Peter and what he communicates to us, because to Peter, the resurrection is a central moment, not only in his life, but the central moment of all of history, because it changes everything. And you see immediately at verse 3, it, Peter bursts into praise. He says, in his great mercy, we've been given this new birth and the living hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And what Peter is claiming is that the possibility of new life and everlasting hope is only possible through the resurrection. And the importance of it, it can't be underestimated. You can take away other parts of the Christian story. It might survive, but you take away the resurrection. There is no point. It all falls away. And the resurrection of Jesus, it's, it's God's proclamation that death is not the end. This world is not all that there is. In fact, it's through his death and resurrection of believers in Jesus, he says here, they're born again. They're given this new, regenerated life in God and they're filled with his Holy Spirit. And it's through Jesus and his resurrection that we receive this new identity with him and we're brought into this church family. It's a declaration, the resurrection, by God that the injustices of the past, they're not forgotten about and that sin and evil, they will never triumph. It's a complete game changer of the past, the present, and the future. And the resurrection here is why Jesus described as our living hope. He has conquered death. He lives forever. And because of that, he offers hope to every generation, starting from Peter then and all the way up to us now in the present day. And it's in this resurrection that Jesus has set for us a precedent that life in this world is not all there is, but there's something greater to come. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's broken the power and the fear of death in our lives. Because the day will come when actually he will raise us from the dead and we will be transformed to be like him. You imagine that? I wonder if any of you have aches and pains or worries and fears in this room. Imagine those being stripped away. Imagine those being healed. Imagine those being transformed and changed. A day will come when all that will happen. Imagine what that will be like. And the resurrection, therefore, it's this pivotal moment for every believer in every generation in this living hope it opens up for us a whole new world and that's what peter continues to focus on as we look down in these next three verses in these next few verses because through the resurrection he claims in verse four and five we've been brought into an inheritance that can never spoil perish or fade and this inheritance is kept 
in heaven for you. But there's a little bit of an issue that I have with these verses. And the issue is that Peter doesn't go into really great detail about what this inheritance actually is. He just sort of says, there it is. And I think he does that very, very deliberately. And we have to ask, well, why? Why does he just stop right at that? And I think there's a couple of reasons. And the first one is to literally try and describe heaven itself. You're trying to d- describe or express the inexpressible. And no matter what he says or what I can try and convey tonight, it will always be infinitely better. And that's not put a limit, to put a limit on God or to put a limit on the Holy Spirit and what he can reveal and say, but it's actually a limit on, on what our minds can conceive on this side of things here and now. And many of you in this room may be thinking of particular passages in Scripture where heaven is described. And the, the imagery and the language used in those passages only really gives us an insight or a glimpse of what heaven will be like. That's what we have, building up this picture in Scripture. We have glimpses, not the full spectrum yet. So the question we have to ask in this particular part is, well, how does Peter actually add to those glimpses? What does he want to convey to us here and now about that? I would imagine nearly every single person in this room has a bank account. If you think about, well, why do most people put all their money in the bank and not keep it at home? And because it'll be stolen or lost or destroyed or taxed, I don't think we'll say that. (laughs) Stolen, lost or destroyed. But in the bank, well, it should be safe and secure. And I say should because somebody in in this room will be smart and be thinking, well, hold on, the bank can still be robbed or it can be hacked. So is, is that really a great example? And I think actually the flaw in that makes me or helps me to reinforce the point because any inheritance, money, possessions, anything we own this earth, we will lose. It will fade. It will perish. It will be destroyed. Earth, wherever you store it, is vulnerable. But heaven is invulnerable. That's what he wants us to see and realize, the security of heaven. And anything here, it will perish. It will spoil. It will fade away. But the inheritance we have in heaven is kept there because it's beyond all of those threats. And if it wasn't kept there with God, it would be exposed and everything that we hope for in Jesus would be at risk of being lost. But it's perfect and it's timeless and it's eternal because it's anchored again by the resurrection of Jesus and it's kept safe and secure for us in him. And if your ultimate hope is in anything else, you will be ultimately disappointed And it's not just limited to our possessions, but it can be limited to particular persons or ideas. And if you look in the political world, I think you can find a real example of this because over the last 10 or 15 years, there's this rise of the religion of politics, putting hopes in particular people or particular ideas. I think a really simple example of that is if you look over to America, to the US presidential election, no matter who's up to be elected, the narrative is always exactly the same. So it goes something a little bit like this. This is the best candidate ever. This one's going to change everything. This one's going to change everything to make our lives and our country perfect. But whenever that person fails or disappoints, as he's disappointed at the minute to many people, or he leaves office, cycle starts all over again. And with any change or new beginning, there's always just great excitement and buzz. Doesn't matter if you get something new or something, something changing, new job, new stuff, whatever. There's always that initial buzz, that feeling. But it always fizzles out and it fades away. And then no matter what that is, we're just left longing for something else. We're left longing for something more. And then we either try the cycle all over again or else we're in danger of just giving up. It doesn't matter who 
or what else we try to put our hope in, everyone and everything else will at some point disappoint or disappear and you accept Jesus because it's temporary and it's imperfect. You will be left longing because that longing can't be filled by anything in this world. It has to come from someone else. And I think C.S. Lewis puts this perfectly. There's this little chapter in Mere Christianity called Hope. It is the best, well, some of the best four pages I've ever read and I would highly recommend it. This is just a wee snippet from it. He says this. Most people, if they had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings that arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And I'm not talking about what would be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. There was something to be grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a very good wife. The hotels and serenity may be excellent. The chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. I've lived part of my life without Jesus, and I've lived part of my life with him. And I don't know about you, but that's been my experience. There's simply no relationship, no career, no person, idea, amount of money or stuff that can satisfy us in the way this living hope, this inheritance in Jesus can. In fact, what I've actually learned is it is this living hope that gives us perspective on all those other things. Because at the start, they're not inherently bad at face value. But it actually gives us perspective on them and it helps us to put those things in their proper place. And when we put our hope and trust in Jesus, the things and the rewards of this world, they don't become goals, but they become gifts. And it's only when we realize that the things in these worlds are uh, things in, the, in this world are actually temporary that we can actually grow to fully appreciate and be thankful for them. Or even if some of the things in the world which we are busting for, which we really, really long for, if they never come to be, then we know we have something greater to look forward to that's secure, can't be lost, can't be taken away, which will more than compensate and make up for that. Thinking of all we've thought about so far, and it's been great, some of these things we think about, this living hope, this resurrection, this inheritance. And Peter kind of takes a little turn in these verses now, though. And he says, in all of this, this is verse 6, sorry, in all of this, he says, you greatly rejoice. And there's some great reasons to greatly rejoice. But then he says, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come to the proven genius of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although we've been thinking about this passage through the lens of, of hope, the actual context of Peter's letter is that he's writing to encourage these Christians in Asia Minor who are being persecuted. And the reality for them, and we can't compare back then to what they were living through, what we are now. But the reality for them and the reality for many of us is that life can be difficult and painful and frustrating. And following Jesus for these particular followers hadn't made things any easier. In fact, it actually made things a lot harder. And I imagine that some of you and some of these believers who have been listening to this would think about this passage and go, well, this all sounds great. I mean, this is really wonderful, but it sounds like it's way over there somewhere. 
way over in the future, outweigh somewhere. I mean, it's wonderful, it's great, I, I hear it, but it's all the way down the road. I mean, what's it going to change right now? Things are really hard and difficult right, right now. And Peter, he doesn't focus on why pain and suffering happen, but on what they can actually achieve for those who put their hope in Jesus. And to Peter, it's not about whether people will suffer. In fact, there seems to be a bit of an inevitability about that. But it's about suffering well to him. And you see that in chapter 1, but throughout all this letter as well. It's about suffering well to him. And that's what I think he wants these believers and us to realize as well. And he paints this picture of, of gold being refined, going through the furnace. And when gold's taken out of the earth, it comes up with this um, sort of what he, what's called dross, this sort of um, useless material. And it makes the gold look a lot bigger than it actually is, but a good bit of it's actually useless. And what actually has to happen now is it goes through the furnace and it gets refined and all the dross gets burned off. And even though the size of it gets really reduced, it, its value goes up like astronomically, just goes up big time. And similarly for us, our trials and our present suffering may be painful, prolonged, even permanent. But what if through those it's achieving for us something that is far more valuable? Listen to me. With Jesus, our suffering and struggles are not meaningless. They're not they are not the result of fate or luck or karma or curse. Instead, we can take great encouragement from the reality that God can take the worst times of our lives, our regrets and our mistakes and our frustrations and our struggles and our pain, and he can refine that into something beautiful and invaluable in us. And it's not just a thought or a suggestion. That's the reality that I've seen in faithful believers who put their hope and trust in Jesus time and time and time and time again. I was at a funeral of a very godly lady recently, about four or five weeks ago. And uh, her son goes to our church and his family. I didn't know her particularly well, but the pastor was getting up and, and just talking a little bit through her life. And she received a terminal cancer diagnosis quite at the end of her life, which led her in quite a lot of pain. But he said something absolutely remarkable about her at the end. He said her suffering, what she went through, didn't break her. It revealed her. And I think I've thought about that every single day since he said that. Because I thought, what a compliment. Oh my goodness, what a compliment. I hope a day will come when somebody stands up and says something as great about that, about me. So that's given me such encouragement. And what if one of God's purposes through the difficulties of our lives was to shape and reveal us as true children of God? What if through the course of our lives, he's shaping us into people who are able to bring him praise and glory and honor by being able to see our present circumstances through the lens of our future hope, building in us a faith and a character and maturity, things that are absolutely invaluable, priceless, that allows us to navigate through this world with hope in preparation of being in eternity with him. And I think Paul puts it better than me when he says in Romans, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But I threw out a question just a moment ago. And I said, well, if this, if this hope is all in the future, what can it provide right now? And the answer, I think he goes on to reveal in that, is, is joy. He says in verse 8 and 9, though you haven't seen him, 
You love him. Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What our living hope in Jesus provides us right here and now in the present is this inexpressible, glorious, mind-boggling joy that allows us to keep going with great expectation and anticipation of what's ahead. We can rejoice and smile through the trials of our lives, not because we have to. It's not just grin and bear it and get on with it, you know, stiff up our lip or something like that. It's not. It's because no matter what happens, we are looking forward to something greater with Jesus. No matter what comes, our joy can be retained because it's tied to that living hope we have in him. And it's this hope and joy that feeds our hearts and our minds through the most difficult and dark days because we know our hope depends on him and our salvation is secure with him. We have a shelter in him and our faith and hope and trust and joy that will shield and will carry us to the very end and beyond. So as we come to a close, and Curtis is going to come up and, and pray and close in prayer in just a minute. But as we come to a close, I want to challenge you. Not just about what you put, who do you put your hope in, but you, who do you put your hope in now in the present? And this C.S. Lewis quote, this is one I keep around and, and read early and often. And he says this again. Hope is a theological virtue. This means a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world are the ones who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot uh, on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become ineffective. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. What do you hope for? And as we thought about at the beginning, what we hope for will direct our whole lives because that is why we live our lives. So as Curtis comes now to, to come and close in prayer, let me, encourage, let me encourage you to respond to the Lord. Put your hope in him. Allow him to show you how your world and the world around you can be totally changed by looking to the next. Jesus invites us into a living hope, anchored in his resurrection that goes beyond this life. He offers us a matchless, priceless inheritance in heaven that satisfies the deepest longings of our, of our hearts. And this hope cannot be extinguished by anything that this life has to throw at us, or even by death itself. It endures and delivers for us an inexplicable joy and allows us to carry on through the hardest and darkest times of our lives while shaping us, giving us character, that faith, that maturity, and preparing us for eternity with him. What other hope can be compared to that?